Hi, it's Fraser here. As regular listeners will know by now, Spiked's podcasts, essays, articles, and videos are free in every sense of the word. Spiked exists to fight for freedom. And in 2020, freedom has never been more threatened. Lockdown threatens our right to free assembly and free movement, while cancel culture and identity politics threaten our right to free speech and free thought. Democracy, that most important right of a free people, is similarly under siege. Spiked wants to challenge these illiberal and authoritarian trends, but we can't do it without your help. It's donations from our listeners and readers that allow us to keep up these fights and to take our message to a growing audience. So, if you haven't already, please consider making a donation to Spiked. One-off donations are fantastic, but regular donations are even better. Just £5 per month can make an enormous difference to our work. Donating to Spiked is really easy to do. Just go to our website at spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. We cannot thank you enough for your support. Now, on with the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week we have Spiked's editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Islamist condemnation of France, Labour's anti-Semitism crisis and the US election. Notre pays a été frappé par une attaque terroriste islamiste. Three people have been killed in a knife attack in the French city of Nice. Chaos and terror in the heart of another French city. The perpetrator did not stop repeating Allah Akbar. But around the Muslim world, there's anger at what some describe as President Macron's anti-Islam agenda. France has been rocked once again by Islamist terror. Three people have been killed in Nice. One of the elderly victims was decapitated. These attacks follow the beheading of Samuel Paty earlier this month, a school teacher who showed cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad to his pupils in a class about freedom of expression. Since Paty's murder, French officials have reasserted the right to display cartoons mocking the Muslim Prophet. This has angered many across the Muslim world, including Turkey's President Erdogan and Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan. A former president of Malaysia tweeted this week that Muslims have a right to be angry and to kill millions of French people. Brendan, what have you made of first this latest attack, but then let's also talk a bit about the response from the rest of the world? Yeah, well, the latest attack is just utterly grim and deeply, deeply shocking. I mean, these were, as so far as we know, with the details we have at the moment, these were people who were going to church, to a Catholic church, and they were just slaughtered. And apparently the elderly woman who, according to the latest report I've read, was there simply to pray, was virtually beheaded. So this is medieval stuff. This is incredibly disturbing act of ideological religious slaughter. And it's really, really quite upsetting to read the details of it. And coming so soon after the beheading of Samuel Paty, whose crime, of course, was to teach children about freedom of speech and to show them caricatures of Muhammad, you know, there's a big problem in France. There's a very serious problem. I actually think President Macron 
is dealing with it relatively well. Now, we can agree or disagree with his clampdown on legal Islamist groups and his expulsion from the country of certain radical foreign preachers. That's something we can debate. But I think what's significant about what Macron has been saying over the past couple of weeks is that he clearly grasps the seriousness of the problem in France. And the seriousness of the problem in France is that it has a significant section of its population who loathe the French Republic and loathe its values and are willing either to kill people or to turn a blind eye when people are killed. It's an enemy within situation. And I don't mean Muslims are the enemy within, but I think Islamists, anti-French Islamists are an enemy within France. And it's incumbent upon the president to do something about that. I think the response around the world to the Samuel Petit beheading, and it seems like it will be similar to the Nice attack, has been just utterly depraved. In Western Europe, there's been virtual silence. There's been lots of news coverage, of course, but there's been very little commentary. There's been a real silence from liberals. There's been virtually no commentary at all from leftists. Political figures in the UK have said almost nothing. They haven't offered clear solidarity to France, even as it's come under attack from Turkey, from Iran, from Imran Khan in Pakistan, all of whom have been denouncing France as Islamophobic for the past week. There's been no clear expression of solidarity with France while this is happening. And I think, to me, that's in some ways the, the more disturbing thing, because if you will not speak up when school teachers are beheaded, if you will not say something when an elderly woman has her head cut off while she's at church, you just think, when will you say something? When will you stand against extremism? When will you say, vive la France, I'm going to stand by our ally, and I'm going to face down or help to face down these regressive reactionary forces who loathe the French Republic because it believes in liberty. The silence, I think, is going to have longer term consequences for us because it suggests that many in the West have utterly abandoned the values of freedom of speech and the values that define the French Republic in particular, and now have a lot in common with reactionary political figures in the Muslim world who want to have a global ban on criticism of Muhammad. So the silence in response to these attacks is deeply chilling and something we should be concerned about. Ella? The attack in Nice is particularly grim, not just because of the content, as Brendan said, but because of Nice's history with Islamic terrorism. I mean, Jesus, they've had several incidents. In 2015, there was the stabbing attack. In 2016, that, that was that horrendous incident where an Islamist terrorist drove a truck into a crowd celebrating Bastille Day, killing 86 people and injuring almost 500 others. And now this. And so there's, I mean, there's some serious questions for the French government to answer, not just in terms of how to deal with this in the here and now, but why there has been such a failure to catch and outline and deal with these people who are living in France who are clearly plotting attacks year after year and are being successful in their attacks. And part of the answer to that question is, as Brenton says, there is a, a real cautiousness around this because of the nature of the discussion around Islamophobia. But the important thing about these attacks that we've just heard about today as we're recording is that unlike the beheading of Patti, which was a response to him showing the cartoon. These attacks are a response to 
the answer to that attack, which is that, you know, we've had, as Brendan, you mentioned in your column for Spike this week, Saudi Arabia, Erdogan in Turkey, Pakistan coming out and saying that you have to boycott France, that you that they shouldn't be allowed to show these cartoons and being defiant in the face of the beheading of Patty. And that has presumably spurred on these animals to kill others in the name of protecting against the offence of being shown a cartoon. So there is really absolutely no space any longer for anyone to talk about the fact that this is to do with dejected people who are the victims of Islamophobia, who have been treated badly. You know, what's happened today is a direct response to the defense of free speech in civilized countries. That's it. And so there is no room for any kind of debate in response to showing solidarity with the people who've been the victims of these attacks uh, across France and in Saudi Arabia in the consulate. I think it's really, really important to just underline how outrageous it is, you know, to talk about Islamophobia in, in this context. It is nothing more than, than victim blaming. And we've heard this line, as you say, from the, from all of these countries. It's implied in the kind of silence of much of the Western countries that, you know, France is bringing this upon itself or Petit brought it upon himself. He shouldn't have shown those cartoons. He should have been more sensitive. He shouldn't have caused offense. And, you know, that is incredibly disturbing. I think it's essentially become a tool of Islamists to say that it's racist to criticize Islam. It's it's become a way for them to deflect. This term is just now so abused that it really has no use for us. Brendan, what are you going to say? I agree completely with that. And I think a lot of these problems stem from the Islamophobia industry over the past couple of decades. And what I mean by that is that the Islamophobia industry, this idea that there is a unique loathing of Muslims in Western Europe and that any form of criticism of Islam is potentially racist, potentially punching down, will cause emotional, mental difficulties for Muslim communities. All those ideas have really fed into a culture of grievance and a culture of victimhood. And if you mash that together with the other problem, which is Islamic extremism, which has also been growing over the past two decades in Europe, you have a really dangerous combination of forces. And what you have in these violent acts, I think, are really warped, violent expressions of the culture of victimhood. And this sense that us poor Muslims live in such hateful societies, surrounded by people who loathe our religion and who dare to criticize our prophet. And therefore, we're going to lash out and attack these people. And all the Western liberals and leftists and politicians who who refuse to stand with the victims of the attacks and instead, as you say, Fraser, virtually imply that they brought it on themselves, that, you know, Charlie Hebdo wouldn't have been attacked if it didn't caricature Muhammad. Samuel Paty would have been fine if he hadn't shown those cartoons to children. God knows what they'll say about the people at Nice. Maybe they shouldn't have gone to church and then they would have been okay. You know, it's this constant excuse-making for the most barbaric acts of violence does absolutely nothing to stem this kind of behavior and in fact can be an unwitting green light for it because it gives a sense of moral authority to those people who think that anyone who criticizes Islam deserves to be punished. The most striking thing is the commonality between the kind of woke outlook in the West and the reactionary outlook among the leaders of the Muslim world. And the similarity between those two outlooks is that it's really bad to criticize Islam. 
that is an argument you're just as likely to hear from a Guardian columnist as you are from someone in the Pakistani government. And it's like two forms of blasphemy. In the West, we call it Islamophobia and we sack people from their jobs or we no platform them from campuses. Or in some cases, they get arrested, as has happened to a couple of people in Europe who were seen to defame the prophet. And in the East, they sometimes imprison people, sometimes even execute people for blaspheming against Muhammad. But there's a commonality between these two things, which is a deep sense of censoriousness and this desire to protect Islam from any form of criticism or mockery or mick-taking. And that's the thing that we have to challenge. We have to challenge the idea that there should be limits to freedom of speech because that gives the terrorists a veto over public debate. Because what it says to them is, if you carry on these acts of violence, then we will continue pushing the argument that criticizing Islam leads to violence. And it just gives them a veto over what we're allowed to say about Islam and other issues. So the best thing we can do in response to this medieval barbarism is to insist on full freedom of speech for everyone and to offer unconditional solidarity to France. And the lack of that in Western Europe over the past two weeks has been genuinely shocking. Hi, this is Andrew Doyle, writer, comedian and columnist for Spiked. If you're enjoying this episode of the Spiked podcast, you really ought to check out my podcast, Culture Wars. In this show, we try to get to the bottom of the culture wars by going beyond all the headlines, all the partisan bickering and poking a bit of fun at all the insanity. My latest guests are Katie Herzog and Jesse Single. They're both great journalists, and together they co-host Blocked and Reported, which is a podcast that they describe as being about internet bullshit. They do a fantastic job of dissecting and talking through the many flare-ups and pylons that happen online and in the media every day. In our conversation, we talk about their experiences with cancel culture, the rise of critical race theory, and what the US election means for the culture wars. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, then make sure you check out Culture Wars with me, Andrew Doyle. Now back to the Spiked podcast. The long-awaited Equality and Human Rights Commission report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party was released this week. The Equalities Watchdog found three breaches of the Equality Act and branded Labour responsible for unlawful acts of harassment and discrimination. Former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn said he hoped the report's recommendations would be swiftly implemented, but he did not accept all of its findings. He said the scale of Labour's anti-Semitism problem had been dramatically overstated for political reasons, and he has since been suspended from the party and has had the whip removed. Ella, what have you made of this rather grim episode? Yes, it's incredibly complicated and at the same time really unsurprising. I mean, anyone who is waiting for this report to confirm to themselves that there was an issue with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is, you know, not on planet Earth. We all knew that there was a big issue with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Everyone in the Labour Party knew that there was a big issue. It's sort of slightly insulting that it's had to come to this point for anyone to actually take this issue seriously. But here we are. We've had a morning of odd press conferences, a kind of very forced quasi-emotional statement from Keir Starmer, who has come under flack for basically having to be pushed to remove the whip from Jeremy Corbyn. But it's really anticlimactic because now what? I think the thing for me is that, number one, Corbyn was never the 
puppet master in all of this. He wasn't the bogeyman at the heart of spreading anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. It was actually a much more insidious and serious problem, which is that for a very long time, particularly in Momentum, but across different sections of the Labour Party, sort of vacuum where any kind of real left-wing ideology perhaps once was around a serious criticism of capitalism has fizzled away into basically a hatred of fat cats and rich men, which, as we all know, is a hop, skip and a jump away from Soros or rich Jews or, you know, controlling the media, all those kind of tropes to slip in. And of course, in relation to Corbyn, that's exactly what happened with his scandal around the mural in which he apologised for anti-Semitism, turned a blind eye to a mural which depicted hook-nosed Jews playing Monopoly on the back of dying Arabs. I mean, you just can't get any more anti-Semitic than that. But the question for me is, what now? Because this whole row has really, I think the headline is that it's revealed the decrepitness and the grimness really of the Labour Party at this point, because this war is going to continue. There are some people who are still saying that what Keir Starmer has done is consolidating his role as a new leader and that this is really just political manoeuvring. There are others that say that, you know, there needs to be a much bigger purge it's a sort of never ending the row around anti-Semitism. And if you are a Jew who's been watching this, or you don't even have to be Jewish, actually, someone who finds anti-Semitism appalling, this isn't very satisfying because it all feels a bit performative. It all still feels a bit shallow. And the tragedy is that anti-Semitism has been completely weaponized by both sides and not taken seriously for a very long time. So the, you know, Starmer says he's hanging his head in shame. I think the entire Labour Party should have been hanging their head in shame far before the ECHR report forced them to publicly. Yeah, it's a Starmer is so ashamed of it that he didn't quit the shadow cabinet or anything like that or leave the Labour Party, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you raised the example of the mural because I think this is so illustrative of the way that basically the left today, particularly Labour, sees anti-Semitism as not really a serious form of, of racism. Because if you talk about kind of any other type of racism, Islamophobia, you know, kind of anti-black racism, things like that, you'll hear them say that there's systemic racism, that racism lurks everywhere, even in secret, even if it's not expressed. You know, they see racism in microaggressions, in glances, in offhand comments. But Corbyn can look at this very obvious racist mural and doesn't see anti-Semitism. You know, he can studiously not see anti-Semitism in the people he invites to the Houses of Parliament, like Reid Suller, who was, you know, someone he invited for tea. This is a man who promoted the anti-Semitic blood libel that Jews bake bread using the blood of non-Jewish children. Corbyn described him as a man whose voice must be heard. He didn't see any anti-Semitism in laying a wreath to honour one of the terrorists involved in the Munich massacre, which is one of the most horrific and bloody anti-Semitic incidents in Europe since the Second World War. So, you know, clearly he and his acolytes don't see this as racism, while seeing racism in practically everything else if it's against another group. Brendan? That's a really important point about the blind spot in relation to one form of prejudice. And, you know, in terms of that mural, as Ella described what's on the mural, to me, that would be like if, you know, the leader of the Conservative Party had liked a mural depicting black people as monkeys, right? If the leader of the Conservative Party had done that, everyone would have said, 
you're a complete racist. This is a serious situation. You can't go around praising racist caricatures. That's what Corbyn did. That was an explicitly racist image. And very early on, he said, it's fine. There's no problem with it. The key thing, I think, is Labour's broader attitude towards anti-Semitism, because it was an acquiescence to anti-Semitism that was the real problem. So the problem wasn't that the party was full of people who believed the blood libel and, and openly hate Jews, but it was full of people who had an extraordinary double standard on anti-Semitism. And this is a party, particularly its new woke membership and the Corbynista agitators. These were the kind of people who who minutely police language in relation to every social group, who see racism everywhere, who think if you want to keep biological males out of domestic violence refuges, you are a hateful, disgusting, transphobic bigot. They are obsessed with seeing prejudice and they're obsessed with calling it out and they're obsessed with policing language, except when it comes to anti-Semitism. And then they completely shift into the polar opposite where they don't see it, or they say it's fine, or it's not anti-Semitism at all, or it's being exaggerated. That double standard has to be explained. And the reason that double standard is important is because that was mainstream in the Labour Party. The number of people in the Labour Party who acquiesced or apologised for or turned a blind eye to anti-Semitism was widespread. And the reason they did that is because they see Jews as different to other social groups. And the reason they see, see Jews as being different is because they've bound Jewish people up in their narrative of privilege. So Jewish people in this regressive identitarian narrative in which there are privileged people and oppressed people, white people and brown people, good people and bad people, this very binary, completely anti-intellectual narrative that they've developed, in that narrative, Jews are almost at the top. They're mostly white. They're pretty successful in many countries. They have their own state, and apparently it's the most evil state that's ever existed if you listen to radical left-wingers. So Jews are right at the top of this privileged list, and it's and it's that identitarian narrative, I think, which has provoked a lot of the contemporary forms of anti-Semitism and the contemporary acquiescence to anti-Semitism. And so this is the root of the problem, and that's why it's a far deeper-seated problem than the ECHR is capable of understanding. The problem wasn't that the internal party processes weren't adhered to all the time. The problem wasn't that some cases fell apart and other cases didn't. I'm, sh I'm sure those things are a problem, but the problem is much larger than that, which is that these people have allowed a new form of anti-Semitism to emerge, ironically, in the language of anti-racism. So contemporary anti-racism is really just identity politics, which groups people according to their race and their biology and has a hierarchy of good to bad. And the Jews have probably been the biggest loser in that process. And that's the thing that really needs to be explained. And all those people who said anti-Semitism is being exaggerated or it's not that bad or some things aren't anti-Semitism at all, I think they are just as responsible for the return of this racism as the classic old anti-Semites are. There's also the issue that I think the Labour Party has for a long time, it's not just that it hasn't got a kind of cohering ideology. It doesn't have a set of cohering big ideas that it frames its politics around. It seems to be just responding day after day to a series of complaints about identity politics, as Brendan has outlined. So one week it's a trans issue, the next week it's a race issue. Whatever comes up, that's what it coheres its 
outlook towards. And one of the ways in which that has allowed anti-Semitism to rise in such a toxic form has been around, you know, it's quite long-standing, pretty blanket approach to supporting the BDS movement and pro-Palestine movements, some of which, not all, but some of which are pretty hairy when it comes to anti-Semitism. And it leaks out in ways that are often quite hard to detect. There was that big fuss about Rebecca Long-Bailey liking an article by Maxine Peake, who's a big Corbynista, big fan of Corbyn when he was leader of the Labour Party, which had a kind of really ridiculous, inaccurate claim about Israeli soldiers. But it's that kind of low level, Mm. underlying, often quite hard to detect Apologism for anti-Semitism, as Brendan puts it, which is part of the problem. I mean, I'm so sick of hearing Corbyn and others. He said it today in his response to the the report, talking about the fact that we're a broad church. You know, the Labour Party is a broad church because really what they mean is we don't actually stand for anything. We won't take (laughs) a line on anything unless it's you making a complaint about some form of identity politics. So we'll stand with you when you're whinging about the Jews and needing to launch a BDS movement. We'll stand with you when you want to attack the Conservative Party for being Islamophobic, which there's been so much of this morning. I mean, it's really quite vile that Labour support is coming out and saying, but look, what about the Tories? And you think, oh my God, Mm -hmm. you can't even... Yeah, the the focus is on you, rightly so, this morning. All of that stuff points to the fact they're much bigger problem, which is that they might call it broad church. I call it sort of empty. They're just an empty, hollow party that really only has these kind of poisonous tendencies. So there's what is the future for the Labour Party? They're going to have a few more press conferences apologising for this. It's just not going to work. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. It's Fraser here with another quick reminder, if you haven't already, to consider giving Spiked a donation. All of our content is free and we want to keep it free so we can spread our pro-liberty, pro-democracy message as wide as possible. But we can only do that with your support. If you'd like to make a donation, it's easy. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the show. Americans go to the polls on Tuesday for the 59th presidential election. Most polling shows Joe Biden with a healthy lead against Donald Trump. Biden has also raised significantly more in donations than Trump. And with the backdrop of the pandemic, a shattered economy and mass protests and riots engulfing the country over the summer, conventional wisdom might say that the Democrats are a shoo-in. But Trump infamously defies convention and has defied the pollsters before. Brendan, clearly there's more to this election than the two rather uninspiring candidates. So what's really at stake, do you think? Well, I find myself in the peculiar position of not being a fan of Trump, but absolutely dreading Trump losing, which is really weird because I won't be overexcited if he wins, but I will be really, really down if he loses. And it looks like he's going to lose because of what's at stake. And I think a lot of people, suddenly people I speak to when I have debates and discussions, I think a lot of people don't appreciate what's at stake in this election because the way I understand it is that not just in the US, but around the world, the kind of old liberal 
in quote marks, old liberal kind of technocratic elites who lost out so badly over the past four or five years because the people revolted against them, they see a Biden victory as their way to return to power. That is pretty explicit. And I think that's one of the reasons why the media in the US, for example, has been so partisan in this election. And big tech has been very partisan. Fraser, you write about this on Spiked this week, the way in which they suppressed the Hunter Biden story. And there was a real closing of ranks among different sections of the elites, Silicon Valley, the media class, the cultural establishments. They've really closed ranks to say we can't let Trump win and Biden has to win. And there's a similar sentiment if you listen to these kinds of discussions in Britain, and I'm sure in other parts of Europe too, this desperation for Biden to win as a way of resetting politics and mm. getting politics back to what they see as normality. And the normality was the rule of experts, the rule of technocrats, you know, the right of these well-educated upper middle class people to govern society. That's what they want to return to. And I think if Trump... Trump was a very imperfect, very brash, narcissistic, often destructive block against the worst excesses of that old establishment. That's what he was. He acted as a block against it. That's why many people voted for him. And I think if he loses, which seems likely, all those regressive tendencies will be emboldened. Wokeness, illiberalism, cancel culture, the rewriting of American history, all those things will get worse because the one thing that was holding back that tidal wave, which was this very strange man in the White House, will have been removed. And that's, I think, what we're facing. And I think it will have global consequences. People in Eastern Europe, political figures in Eastern Europe, particularly Poland and Hungary, are very worried about a Biden victory because they know that they will be pushed around by the new technocratic regime if it were to return to power. We know that Biden is incredibly hostile to Brexit and has made threats against Brexit Britain if we don't adhere to the EU's plans. I expect that a Biden-led White House would reward the European Union very early on, would side with the European Union, would seek to re-establish the EU's authority after a pretty bad four or five years for the EU. And I think they would go back to humanitarian interventionism. As Tim Black wrote on Spike this week, the idea that Trump was going to start World War Three turned out to be a complete fantasy. And globally, at least, he has been far less destructive than Obama and Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and others who pursued wars overseas with relish. And I think we'll see a return to those kinds of interventions as well. So in terms of domestically in the US, I think a Biden victory will embolden regressive identitarian politics. Globally, I think it will push back the populist moment and give rise to more destabilizing conflicts. So that is not something to look forward to, I'm afraid. Ella? It's a weird one because it's such a huge event. It's happening next week and I can't garner any excitement about it. And I think that's a kind of general mood from the, all the reports that you watch in the telly and interviews with people that bar a few really hardcore campaigners on either side. A lot of Americans are feeling really quite exhausted by this because it's an incredibly negative campaign. Both sides are basically pushing for the fact that support me because the other guy is really terrible. But as Brendan says, in the case of Biden and Trump, it's even worse because if you look at, you know, Trump, it's easy to see his flaws. 
He's, you know, a bit of a pig. He's very chaotic. You can't predict where he's going to go next. He's sort of principleless. All these things are important. But when it comes to Biden, I mean, in terms of a, of an opposition to a figure like Trump, his track record makes me nauseous, to put it lightly. I mean, we've got a massive culture war raging in America on the question of race. And if you look at Biden's track records on issues around law and order, that phrase that you can't say now without having liberals in America wet themselves, is appalling. I mean, deeply entrenched and linked to the Clinton campaign to that's, you know, many people have said has been the cause of a lot of the issues to do with black people's relationship with the police in America today. When it comes to issues around women's freedom, I mean, he's Sean Collins pointed out in his column for Spikes this week, that let's not forget that Biden has been, I mean, frankly, mental about the question of rape and sexual assault on campus and talking mm-hmm. about the fact that women can't ever, ever consent to sex if they've had a drink, you know, infamously saying drunk sex is rape, is rape, is rape, is rape. So on the question of mad identity politics, I mean, he just blows with the wind on that. And then on something like healthcare, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. He's got an absolutely pathetic record in supporting any kind of transformative policies for America when it comes to that area. So, Jesus, why would people vote for him other than to push back on Trump? And I think the tragedy, which Brendan has outlined, is that it's a bit like you can draw similarities with the Labour Party in some ways in the UK, because the Democrats have failed to learn from the defeat of Hillary Clinton, that American voters want something else other than I'm not the other guy. Mm. And they've just played pretty much blow by blow, you know, day by day, almost exactly the same campaign strategy and messaging around Trump that they did when Hillary Clinton was the hopeful. Whether it's going to work or not, the big issue, again, a lot of Americans are saying is this just isn't the end. I mean, it's quite common to see that people talking about the fact that this is going to be challenged in the courts by both sides. But more importantly, even if you do get a justifiable win by Biden or, you know, if we're all being conned by polls by Trump, that the underlying issues of sort of the deep divisions in American politics, which, you know, go right down to the personal level, which is what identity politics does. It's kind of people are really hate each other over this issue of the culture wars. You know, American cities are alight. People are suing the police. Uh, there's sort of civil war around issues like abortion, like trans, you know, all these things are on a personal level. People are kind of raging against each other. That's not going to go away with a Biden or Trump victory. There has to be some kind of, you'd hope there has to be some kind of shakeup of American politics. As Brendan says, Biden winning it, you know, the old establishment coming in and resecuring the controls of America after four years of a blip of this sort of mad orange guy. It's just going to spell doom for any kind of, not even radical, just transformative politics to come in what American voters actually want, which is a change of life, a change of politics. I think the the boringness of Biden is is really fascinating because on some level that is the appeal for some voters. They think the Trump years were too crazy and they want to, you know, kind of put that to bed. And Biden managed to be in the primaries. He was the not Bernie candidate. And in the current election, he is the not Trump candidate. And it's been really fascinating to see kind of his supporters, particularly the media, suddenly realize that, you know, okay, maybe that's not going to get them across the line. And there has been this really desperate 
last ditch attempt to portray him as the next FDR, the second coming of, you know, a kind of great transformative presidency when everyone knows that that's rubbish. Everyone knows that he's not a transformational candidate. Everyone knows that he is the candidate of the status quo ante. And it's been really, you know, Brendan, you alluded to this earlier, the way that the elites in the media in in Silicon Valley have coalesced around him for this exact reason is incredibly frightening. They have pretty much tried to suppress or deny or deflect even the slightest criticism, any scandal that might touch his campaign is dismissed as, as, as Russian disinformation. And, you know, maybe those scandals are not significant. There's a debate to be had about how much they should influence the election. I don't think they should influence how you vote. But these are the people that are supposed to be allegedly, they will say that they're going to be holding him to account for the next four years. You know, we're in a really scary situation where if Biden wins, we have a kind of complete ideological conformity across the lead party, across the media and across social media. That's a very dangerous situation to be in in a democracy. And as we've said before, there are so many problems with Trump, but at least he is a significant counterweight to that. And what happens when he goes, that counterweight potentially disappears. And that's pretty frightening. I think this raises a bigger question about democracy, because I think the irrational response to Trump's victory, like the irrational response to Brexit, really demonstrates that there are a lot of people in power who pay lip service to democracy, but they don't believe in it. And and the fact that what you're describing, Fraser, in in terms of the elites in the US closing ranks and using pretty underhand repressive measures to prevent anything from blocking a Biden victory, including censorship by big tech, the media ignoring certain stories or giving Biden's camp a soft ride and so on, all of that really actually calls into question how committed these people are to democracy. Because we now know what happens when the people give the supposedly wrong answer. And in their view, the people of Britain gave the wrong answer in 2016, the people of America gave the wrong answer in 2016. And when that happens, they really go to war against democracy and all the things you need in democracy, which is freedom of speech, the right to report on certain stories, the right to communicate and so on. So behind all the kind of soft soaping of the Biden campaign and the completely unhinged demonization of Trump as the worst president ever, and anyone who votes for him is essentially a Nazi, what we're seeing is the fact that these people actually don't take democracy seriously. And if politics doesn't remain within their ballpark view of politics, something that is full of expertise, something that is checked and balanced, something that is calm, something that is done by people like them rather than people like Trump or people like the working classes, if politics doesn't stay within their purview and their worldview, they go crazy. So that's fundamentally what's at stake here. I know it looks like it's just a kind of crazy war to get Trump out of the White House. But more broadly, behind this, there lies the idea that sometimes democracy gives the wrong answer and therefore it has to be punished and reprimanded. And that's genuinely a problem. And I think it's something we have to take more seriously. And we, I think we have to start pushing the argument that democracy doesn't exist to give the establishment the answers it wants to hear. Democracy exists to allow the people to say what they want to say. And that sounds like a an obvious 
description of democracy, but I think it's increasingly less obvious to the establishment that that's what it is. And I think that's the argument we've got to push. Whatever happens in this election, we have to make it clear that democracy is a process by which the people express their desires for the future of their nation, not a process by which the establishment gets to hear certain answers from a multiple choice question. And that's the kind of view of democracy we've got to start defending. Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider, or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.